Blog Talk Radio. Radio Show's Thursday broadcast of the REPA Radio Hour brought to you by the Eastern Airlines Radio Show and the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. We share the stories and memories of the pilots through the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern captain and producer of the show. We hope you'll enjoy the stories we bring to you every Thursday at this time, and and you will join in the conversation during the broadcast. Now let's get the show in the air. REPA 22, you're cleared to start engines. Hey. Uh, 22, you're cleared for takeoff. Around the tower, we're on the roll, and we'd like a straight out departure today. Uh, Roger, that's approved, Reaper 22. Thank you. Easier. From the ground up, 
or as they sometimes refer to it as a brain bag. Notice I said back in the day. Today's pilots mostly carry a little 8 by 10 inch computer tablet, so yes, at times they are changing. Now, our producer tells us, tells me, that it did not make the pages of repartee, but it did make it into his book, Wings of Man, Manly. So let's continue sharing more stories of the man who flew for Easton in the skies. Mr. Producer, let's hear your treatise entitled The Flight Bag. Yes, uh, it is a story back in the day that should be told about a relic from the past. That is the pilot's flight bag. I wrote this story and had it printed in the best or the wings of many. And I start the story by giving a description of the typical pilot's flight bag. It's sturdy, saddle style, handle wrapped, waterproof ballistic material, matched stitching for added strength. Metal piano hinge for added strength, added fasteners on both inside flaps, riveted pressure points, multi-access folder compartments, multiple storage compartments, flashlight and pen holder, leather-wrapped handle, side pocket compartment, name card holder with clear cover, embroidered gold logo, with outside dimensions of 18 by 13 by 8 inches. And when you buy it new, it includes a one-year manufacturer warranty. Let's see where I put my flight bag, the captain asked himself. I always put it close to the door, but it's not here. Taking his uniform hat off and scratching his head, the captain studies all the black leather bags scattered around the 20 by 20 room at the Atlanta airport flight operations of the airline he is employed with. Each steel shelving unit had four separate layers of shelving. You multiply that by at least a dozen units, flight bags that is, filling the room. The leather smell was as strong as a high tannery at maximum production. Most of these bags, including mine, were black, and you could always spot those pilots serving in the military reserve unit before coming to Easton. They were military standard issue brown. A well-made flight bag could last for over 10 years and usually constructed with a sturdy saddle-style Handle wrap, waterproof ballistic material matched stitching for added strength, metal, and on and on, as I earlier mentioned. All types and sizes were residents of the flight crew bag room. Many were lookalikes and had some special decal to differentiate it from its neighbor. Mine had a round button of Pac-Man at each end, and when in motion, its mouth would seem to be eating with each swing of the arm. It was a blue background, and Pac-Man was yellow, as I recall. On the back side of my bag was a beautiful decal of the aircraft I was presently flying, the Boeing 757. This was my third flight bag in this my 25th year of airline flying. 
Contents were generally the same with all airline flight bags, the airline flight ops manual, airport approach charts and airways charts, flashlights, aircraft flight manual, some tools, pencils and pens, scratch notepads, an E6B pocket circular flight computer, and assortment of other reading materials. Usually those that contain at least one full spread pin-up centerfold, but then some pilots would find room in this already overstuffed leather bag to accommodate much, much more. One pilot, for instance, carried an array of magical tricks and novelties to entertain both his flight deck crew and cabin crew members as well. He even carried a rubber chicken in his flight bag. Upon landing, he would tell his second officer to tell the maintenance over, over the company phone that the aircraft had taken a bird strike and would need the main windshield cleaned. Taking out his rubber chicken, he would open the left sliding window and reaching out, put the chicken's head under the windshield wiper blade. When the aircraft approached the jetway, the ground crew could be seen in great laughter and realized they had been had. Another captain was known to carry a bra in his flight bag so that when the flight attendant came into the cockpit, he would be wearing it over his head to cup his ears like a headset would. Rags, paintbrushes, and other cleaning tools would be stuffed in flight bags along with the FAA-required minimum items. A paintbrush, you ask? This particular captain would, as soon as he was comfortable in his seat, take this paintbrush, his paintbrush, out of the flight bag, then commence to dust the center and side consoles from all the left-behind pieces of food, cigarette ashes, and any other debris hiding in between the dials and knobs laid out on these instrument panels. Of course, he would do the same with the overhead panel, as there may be strands of someone's hair caught on the knob or on a knob or two. You can always tell pilots on vacation and for how long since a slight amount of dust collected would be perhaps two weeks, whereas a heavy coating meant at least a month off or a medical leave of absence. One captain did business out of his old spare flight bag. He had designed a cap with flight crew just beneath the logo of his company's aircraft, a Boeing 727, a Boeing 747, a Lockheed L-1011, Airbus A300, and Douglas DC-9. You could purchase the caps with or without the captain's scrambled eggs on the bill. All you needed to do is just drop a note along with a check in the amount of the desired cap, and presto, within two days, a cap of your choice would replace the check or cash left in the flight bag. He was selling about 30 caps a month at an average cost of $15, all from a flight bag in the operations bag room storage area. Another use of a flight bag was demonstrated to me by a crusty old senior Atlanta base captain. I was new on the Boeing 727 and in my third year with Eastern flying a trip with a New York layover. It was my first trip into downtown New York after taking the 101 bus from Newark's terminal to the Grand Central Station in Manhattan. Carrying a suitcase in my left hand and my flight bag in the other, 
I try to show New Yorkers my friendly, southern, courteous manners in body traffic avoidance. I gave way to anyone in my direct path, stepping to the left or right to give them the right-of-way. Falling several yards behind the captain first officer, I found myself nearly running to catch up. When I did finally fall in step with the other two, the captain stopped and gave me the secret of walking in New York pedestrian traffic. Whether underground, in the subway networks of tunnels, or out on the street level. His advice was to keep the head down, noticing only the walkway, focusing only about 10 feet ahead, and to swing the suitcase and flight bag as aggressively as your arms would allow. People tend to avoid a possible collision with two objects traveling at wrecking ball speed. Taking his advice, I managed to stay with the other two with no problem. In the mid to late 60s, someone came up with the idea of a two-wheel flight bag carrier. Actually, I believe it was invented by a stewardess flight attendant. Because they always took a full wardrobe in their suitcase and saw the need necessity of making it easier to carry the entire luggage. Guys thought this was not a guy thing and continued to carry their heavy equipment flight after flight, arms becoming longer and longer. When I saw my first roller bag hauler, I thought it was not something I would want to do in front of flight crew members. The thought of putting my flight bag on one of these metal folding and bungee cord strapped contraptions would be an insult to all pilots. Captain Hank Foley, an Eastern captain and editor of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association's Repartee magazine, tells an experience involving Captain Mark Britt, who was so popular among the co-pilots that he always had a senior experience crew to fly with. Many would bid for Captain Mark's line sequence for the month because he was so fun to fly with. They would do almost anything to make, make Mark's trip easy and enjoyable. They would tune in the radio frequencies, set the course indicators, and provide maps and charts already folded to the aircraft's position at the time. Mark never had to, the occasion to even open his flight bag. Someone thought it would be clever to put a brick inside. Everyone snickled, snickered as Mark carried his, unknowing, his bag unknowingly with a brick laden flight bag. Pleased with the joke after the second flight, they thought it would be twice as funny to put a second brick in. Well, poor Mark, although he had arthritis, he carried this extra heavy bag. But then one day he happened to open it up and discovered the bricks inside. Somehow he found out who had done this cruel prank and he went to the storage room where the flight bags were kept, located the culprit's bag, emptied it, nailed it to the floor, then returned the contents into the bag. The unsuspecting co-pilot tore the handle off trying to pick up his bag. So it was Mark Britt, after all, who was the cleverest and who had the last laugh. Well, let's look inside my flight bag, circa 1980s. Let me see. What was in my black leather flying bag? My memory recalls a bag about 18 inches long by 12 inches high and 9 inches wide. 
an elongated slot allowed the handle to come through the upper flap to be matched by a locking clasp, the security number which I still remember, zero, 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 just as that number came from the factory. Inside, its contents consisted of two loose-leaf leather notebooks containing all the important approach plates served by Eastern. In the same middle compartment of the three-section interior is my EAL flight operations manual. Enough space remained in this section to allow for my two-battery Magnum flashlight and Boy Scout Swiss Army 13-function functional knife. One outside pocket contained the low and high altitude en route navigational charts, nicely stored in a clever plastic viewable accordion plastic container. The other con con contains the captain's atlas, a Tabasco sauce, seasoning for salads, and container of vitamins taken while away from home. There was also a cleaning cloth and sanitation wipes and last but equally important, the current reading material in flight. Not all pilots carried the same articles. Some required, some not. For instance, an aircraft requiring a second officer or a flight engineer back in the day of the propeller-driven aircraft, you would find a flashlight, a flight bag, uh, with about, uh, you would find a flight bag with about 30% larger because of necessary tools he would uh, handy, have to have handy as listed in the operations manual. Even heavier than the two types of pliers, ball peen hammer, hammer, wire cutting dikes, safety wire, duct tape, electrical tape. Also included were adjustable crescent wrench was the aircraft flight manual, weighing at least 10 pounds. Not having to carry approach and navigational charts, the second officer would have a set of weight and balance nomographs for the type of aircraft he would be flying. For those young aviators, the definition of a nomograph is a graph usually containing three parallel scales graduated for different variables so that when a straight line connects values of any two, the related value may be read directly from the third at the point intersected by the line. It takes several years for the second officer's flight bag carrying arm to shorten back to its original length of matching the non-carrying arm. It seems every profession has an accessory tied to its public image. Doctors with their stereoscopes, stethoscopes, Contractors and builders with yellow hard hats. I wonder if they put decals on those hard hats. The attorney's attache case, the chef's stovetop white hat, or the airline pilots with black leather flight bags. Many pilots in the airline industry place stickers on their flight bags, and you can quickly sum summarize their previous or present equipment, airline, former life, or hometown just from looking at them. Adding personality to the flight bag, pilots would decorate to a form of political beliefs. Furthermore, going to flight operations at the pilot's base domicile and trying to find one's own flight bag amongst hundreds of others. 
there were so many black bags, it's almost impossible without some kind of personalized decor added to the exterior walls of the bag. Just by looking at the array of brain bags, as they are sometimes called, one can often tell the owner of the bag, not even by name, but how that pilot fits into the scheme of things in aviation lore. Here is a sample of the bag's owners. The old timer. The old salt has been around the block. If his bag is still in good condition and has not been replaced, then you may see an old Boeing 727 sticker or maybe even a Constellation sticker or a DC-10 sticker. Look for names like Eastern, Republic, TWA, or Allegheny Airlines. The bag is usually void of its once black luster finish and has turned a nice shade of brown from the Florida sun, especially around the folding parts and handles. The Chicago snow, the Seattle rain, the Tucson dusk, you name it, over the years, it is in or on that bag. This bag may well be over 20 years old and, and it is in bad condition, of course, this is all a matter of opinion to the owner and the observer. Now, the newbie. The newbie usually won't have any stickers on his or her flight bag, leading to confusion as to which bag is theirs in a crew room full of black bags. However, when you get to the major airlines, most newbie pilots have a minimum of 5,000 hours and have been flying at the commuter airlines for some time. Therefore, they would actually fall into the once commuter pilot. And keep in mind, though, when they were newbies at the commuters, their bags were usually fresh black. It would then something. It would uh, then be smelling like a new leather wallet from from Coach. Of course, the owner's name is impressed with gold lettering. The new flight bag is worth the smell, however, that smell of rawhide quickly disappears with each hour recorded in the new pilot's logbook. And the redneck pilot. Here we usually have stickers of Bubba's Crab Shack in Baton Rouge or Bass Pro, NASCAR, I Love Ribs, Chitlins, Crawdads, etc. Sometimes you'll see a Get Her Done or a camouflage bass boat sticker on it. Let's also not forget the Dixie flag and the NRA sticker. Hey, the war is over. Now, my bag, we've already gone over. Pilots are proud of their equipment, especially if it were a new aircraft in the fleet. And yes, I pulled off my old Pac-Man buttons from my old flight bag. I put them at both ends, the mouse still trying to gobble up anything in its path when the flight bag was in motion. Some afterthoughts of the story you just heard. The pilot's hat is a lot like the flight bag. New pilot, new hat. New captain, new hat. The hat, like the flag ba bag, will wear out sooner than the flight bag. After all, it's made of cloth and cardboard. But heck, we don't want our junior pilots to know we just checked out, so out comes the wire, circular band known as the grommet that holds the cap in a perfect circle. In its place, rubber bands or an old belt 
are wrapped around from top to bottom when the cap is not in use. This causes a crushing effect on the sides inward to give that 100 mission look. Of course, if it's dropped in grease, you wouldn't dare race, uh, uh, clean the grease off. The, the newer the pilot's hat is worn square to the head, military style. With age, it adorns the head in a slanted style, much like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. My cap was worn mostly under my arm, or between the left thumb and pointing finger. The bill has long lost its black felt construction with bright gold scrambled eggs to one that is tarnished and worn with the impression of two fingers. This impression decorated or discolored the bill to the point that I had to get some black liquid shoe polish to restore the black felt. Leather pilot flight bags are going the way of dinosaurs. They are being replaced by electronic flight bags. Not forgetting the obvious advantage of reliving the pilot, of relieving the pilot from lugging a very heavy bag. Wow, I got through that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That took a while to write, but uh, it was, yeah, I it was guess fun so. reliving that. And and Mike, uh, what what about your flight bag? You travel all over the world. Well, we your your uh, explanation of it all pretty well covers all of the the stuff that we have there. But me being as uh, you know flying international all the time and flying the same airplane. Uh, it was a little different. Uh, I didn't carry a flight bag around. I just had a briefcase that weighed about 80 pounds with everything jammed in there, all the uh, international type stuff. And, uh, and you know, it, our airplane on the 7-2, uh, you know, you used to have that little, uh, that nice square slot uh, sitting down uh, on the left of the captain's side and on the right of the co-pilot's side where you could stick your flight bag. Yeah. Well, with, in our operation, we had two sets of United States Jeffersons, in the, uh, one on each side, so everybody had a chart, and then we had international ones in the back. So you can you can rest assured that when uh, somebody had to get a, a hold of all of those Jefferson revisions, you had oh, a uh, you had a two day job to do. So, <laughs> yeah. but we always had a full set of Jeffersons on the airplane. We had to have all of the uh, the uh, this for our airplanes proving that we had a stage three airplane because all the international uh, handlers would want to see that or whoever the uh, the aviation authorities that and for our auxiliary fuel tank system that we had in the airplane which consisted of 2830 extra gallons down in the belly they wanted to see all this kind of stuff and the usual copies of your licenses and passenger manifests and blank ones and all that and I used to carry world maps because you never knew when you'd be sitting in a hotel and all of a sudden our principals decided that they didn't want to go to Rome. They wanted to go to Dubai or someplace like that, you know. (laughs) So, you know, you'd have to get out uh, that and uh, figure out what it was, get your charts all out and and figure all that stuff out like we'd all normally do. Plus, I always, I carried myself a little, uh, a little uh, language computer. Because I I have enough trouble trying to speak the English language, so you know when I get the uh, get the computer out there, and it covered about eight or ten different languages, and it was pretty oh. handy. 
yeah. it wasn't as uh, as complete as I would have liked it to be, but it, it got us by. But you know, pretty much the same uh, for everything you were talking about on your uh, on your uh, readout. And uh, yeah. the other thing that we used to do was they had from the FAA. It was a uh, that we carried in the cockpit was an IFR supplement that we called it, and it was uh, it was basically uh, covered all of the the runways and taxiways for all the airports in the United States. If they decided they want to go to some crazy airport somewhere, and we used to to uh, look at that quite often because if the airport manager would allow you to come in, that was one thing. But if uh, if we had a problem with the weight-bearing capacity, which, as you all know, uh, the Flu 72s, it has the uh, heaviest weight-bearing capacity per main wheel than even a, a C5A or a 747. So uh, sometimes legally, uh, the runway weight-bearing capacity, may it be uh, ends or the center or the taxiways themselves would be, uh, if you exceeded that limit, uh, I would have to, uh, just to cover myself, I would have to tell our principals that uh, we would have to select another airport that was closer to the, uh, uh, or f- a little further away, so because we wouldn't be able to use the airport that they particularly wanted to do, because they, mm. they thought you could go into a grass field with this airplane, you know, so they, <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't care, they just, they just wanted to go. But yeah. you're 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 you about covered everything uh, on yours with all the uh, my briefcase had stickers all over it. As a matter of fact, I'm still yeah. looking at it. It's on the floor here. <laughs> it's got uh, inspections and custom stickers all over it, and hotel stickers and airplane stickers. And my suitcase was the same way. I had a Halliburton suitcase, yeah. an yeah. aluminum one. And you couldn't even see any any aluminum on it. As a matter of fact, Halliburton wanted to buy it off me. They thought it was a good <laughs> conversation piece. But anyway, I don't want to burn up all the time. We'll move on. <laughs> Harry, How about you, Jim? How about you, Jim Holder? How about your bag? Well, yeah. Jim, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I got a little story, but first I wanted to mention how we they, we were subject to a review of our flight bags by the management of the FAA, although I never remember having one, but I'm sure they did. But they yeah. did want to see your pilot certificates, and you had to show them that, and like they, that's the fire search warrant in today's politically correct world. But I do have a story to tell, and I might have told it before, at least told part of it. I don't know about flight bags, and, and this is the only one I really got. Is that like like both uh, uh, Mike and Neil said, you had to do something to your flight bag so you could find it, and that yeah. you know, uh, and I did, and I had I graduated from Mississippi Southern College in Hattiesburg, and. I had a great big old golden eagle thing that I put one on either side of my flight bag, and that way I could find it real easy in eastern in Atlanta or anywhere else. And uh, <laughs> when I went left uh, eastern and went with ATA, of course, I carried my flight bag, and it had that Mississippi Southern College. And then while I was doing that, they became a university somewhere along the line. So I got the University of Southern Mississippi, University of Southern <laughs> Miss. And I put that thing on there. And uh, then I was just flying around the world, you know, countryside, just having to find your time and everything. And I had this one trip at ATA, I mean, at Eastern. Uh, was going out of Washington, going to Washington, D.C. on a beautiful, clear day. Uh, and I was the captain on the 727, and we had just gotten the authority to have anybody on the jump seat in Part 121 carrier. And 
and they had a big list of all the carrier airlines uh, that were reciprocating, and so they could come fight our jump seat. And this young kid came in in the cockpit in Atlanta, and uh, you could tell he was real nervous, and he said he'd heard that he could ride the jump seat. I said, well, you're not a 121 carrier, because he told me he was uh, flying out of Birmingham with an air taxi. They called him back then. I said, well, come on, you know. He said, I've never been on a jet airplane, much less the cockpit. And uh, <laughs> we put him on a jump seat, and we flew up there, and we did the river approach coming in, you know, screaming ass turn at about 300 feet, lining up with the south. And he just was highly impressed about all that. And I, he thanked me for letting him ride, and I said, that's great, you know, glad to have you. Okay, and I leaped forward about 20 years. I was flying for ATA, been way down, running around Cancun and Cosmo Mail that all day. Ended up back at O'Hare about 9 o'clock that night, and I didn't have anything on schedule the next two or three days, so I was going to ride uh, American down to Atlanta. And that was the last flight on American, the last flight out of anybody at uh, O'Hare going to Atlanta. And I'm sitting there with a little flight bag and, uh, propped up by my leg waiting to see if I'm going to get on the jump seat. They had this weird deal about you could only ride a jump seat if uh, there was nobody. But I forgot exactly how it worked, where the pilots in America, they could only ride a jump seat if there wasn't a seat in the back. I'm not sure why I mentioned that, but it seemed weird at the time. And I'm sitting there reading a book, and these pants, black pants guy comes up next to me, and I look, and I look up at this guy, and, and he saw my Mississippi Southern. And he said, did you go to Mississippi Southern? I said, yes, I did. I was a class of uh, 60. And he said, well, I did too, and I was a class of uh, whatever it was. I've forgotten, 80 or something like that. And, uh, of course, he saw my name on the flight bag and gold letters like Neil's talking about. And he said, uh, Captain Holder, I bet you don't remember, but a long time ago, I came in and I said, yes, I do, and you were flying an air taxi in Alabama, in Birmingham. So he said, yes, that was me, that was me, you know, and it was, what are the odds of that happening? And yeah. he was an American, an American co-pilot. And uh-huh. I told him, you know, well, we shook hands, how you doing? And he thanked me again. That was his first time ever on a jet airplane, and he was riding in the cockpit making a visual river approach to the south. Exciting. <laughs> And uh, he said, I guarantee you, you're going to get on this airplane tonight. <laughs> I said, well, boy, I like that idea. So he went out and talked to the captain on the DC-9 or MD or something or another. I don't know. I can't keep up with him. And uh, needless to say, they invited me to come sit in first class. And I said, great, you know, and get sitting right next to me was that young man. And we talked all the way to oh, the I may have told that story before, but I just love That's a good one to repeat if you did. I I didn't have to make up a single thing. It's all (laughs) true, 100%. (laughs) Good story. Yeah. Harry, what you got next? Well, uh, you had another handsome Callaway-like story. You tell in your book, Wings of Many. Care to share that with us, Mr. Producer? Yeah, a true story. Now... You got to hear this one. Uh, it actually happened to me, and let's see if I introduced it right. But uh, its title is Boom Boom. Well, there's no story like a Hassan Calloway story, that's for sure. 
But the closest I can come to it is a story that I wrote and wanted to get it into repartee. However, I uh, put it in the wings of many. Its title is Boom Boom by yours truly. It was a favorite trip of mine, an A300 flight from Atlanta to Los Angeles, where I intended to get in a visit with my son, his wife, and my grandson. It was high on my bed sheet each month as I had a business in Los Angeles operated by my son, and it was nice to check in each week using my own executive aircraft, an Eastern Airbus A300 with a crew of nine. I carried about 250 guests to pay the operational cost this trip. Fuel and my excellent breakfast served by a very attractive flight attendant, or I should say flight attendants. Arriving at my reserve parking space in the terminal, which was the TWA, uh, with uh, the uh, flight, I gathered my flight bag and checked with my first and second officers about our departure the next morning, which I did a quick glance at my bid sheet to confirm in my mind that it was at 9 a.m. I told my crew that I would be going to Rocket Car Rental to pick up my reserve car at the special airline crew rates of $15 a day, including 100 free miles. Eventually, I would buy a 1974 Ford Pinto station wagon, but that's another story. All went well with a visit with my family, dinner, and a quick check of the business status, even enough time for my drive back to the Marriott from Covina for a visit to the top of the Marriott and the beautiful piano bar music that was played there. After dropping off my rocket car and the complimentary ride back to the terminal the next morning, I still had plenty of time for breakfast and whatever parts of the Sunday LA Times I could find left behind by TWA's boarding passengers just across the hall from our gates. Our flight was the first flight out this morning, and there would not be passengers around our gate for another half hour or so. Coming into the main entrance doors of the North Terminal Complex serving Eastern, TWA and a few additional airlines, I immediately noticed a blonde-haired woman in very short shorts and a t-shirt with two words printed in a strategic area in the front that said boom boom. Since I was early and had extra time, I would see which lucky airline she was flying. I walked a comfortable distance behind and figured that since she was headed toward the TWA gates, she was booked on their early morning departure to St. Louis or some other uh, city west, or east, I should say. She seemed in a hurry to reach her departure gate, however. Well, I peeled off to the restaurant once we reached our gate area, and here I found a couple of sections of the L.A. Times and took a table near the corridor just in case she decided to order coffee or have breakfast. Boom, boom, that is. I ordered my favorite breakfast of eggs over easy, hash browns, two strips of bacon, and dry toast, and a pot of coffee. They gave crew members a 10% discount, and it out there to about to what you would pay at the Marriott, which was not really a bargain. I had nearly finished my first cup of coffee when our gate agent came over to ask if I was a deadheading or pass-riding crew member. I told him neither. 
that I had a trip later this morning and asked if there was a problem. He asked if I was qualified on the A300 because a captain was missing for a flight to Atlanta. I said yes and told him since I was very early for my Atlanta flight, I would see if I could get crew scheduling to allow me to take the flight that now was already late by 30 minutes. Canceling my breakfast and paying for the coffee, I hurried to the gate and out the jetway. Well, reaching the service door at the end, I quickly descended the metal stairs to the ground, and upon stepping onto the ramp, I heard my name called out coming from the direction above me, which was the captain's sliding glass window. Hey, Neil, where the hell have you been? shouted my first officer. I called back. What are you doing on this flight? The answer came back as one I did not want to hear. This is our flight. Back up the outside stairs I went, and upon entering the passenger boarding area of the plane, the flight attendant greeted me with, Better late than never. Since it was the center boarding door, I had to walk past nearly half of my passengers on a full aircraft. An immediate loud applause broke throughout the aircraft. The captain had arrived and the flight could depart. Embarrassed tremendously, I strode toward the flight deck when I noticed a pair of shapely legs missing the bottom part of a properly apparel. I saw the passenger wore shorts, short shorts, and the familiar words boom boom across the strategic area of her t-shirt. It was my boom boom. She was on my flight after all. Wow! At this point in my career, I had never been late for a flight. Uh, like most pilots, I always had three and sometimes four systems to tell the brain to start the wake-up process at a set time. First, the wake-up call, which I always worried if the new person assigned to this early morning detail was himself awake to carry out the assignment, as had happened more than a few times over 26 years of flying now. Second was the bedside clock, which had more buttons and dials than the second officer's panel of an L-1011. The instructions on the clock were the same color as the clock, causing making it uh, impossible to read without a magnifying glass. Most of these clocks would require a manual to explain how to set AM or PM, much less which station I wanted to awaken me, country, classical, top ten hits, or my favorite and loud heavy metal. If these first two failed, I had my Seiko calculator watch with a built-in alarm program that I always set and placed in the nightstand ashtray for further amplification, of course. The fourth is the buddy system, which if used would be your first or second officer hitting the wall in his next door room. However, this was not the problem for being late for my flight, which I will explain toward the end of this tale. I told the first officer if, if he could shave off at least 15 minutes on, on his leg to fly home. I would buy him a biggest steak dinner at a restaurant of my choice, and at this point I wasn't too concerned about fuel. In other words, put the pedal to the metal and a high-speed buffet would not be annoying. Upon giving these instructions, I picked up the PA and explained to the passengers my tardiness, assuring them 
we would be cutting at least 15 minutes from our scheduled flying time. The senior flight attendant, one of my favorite Atlanta-based flight attendants, came up and said, Hey, Neil, I believed every word you said, but could that little boom-boom sitting in seat 5B have had anything to do with it? No, but if you don't believe me, why don't you ask her, I said. Somewhere over New Mexico, the senior flight attendant brought my, my breakfast with an envelope in the tray. The lovely script to my captain was on the cover, and it seemed to have a hint of perfume. Opening the envelope, I found a note written on a food tray dolly, or that should be doily, I guess, to my captain. Thanks for the lovely evening last night, and I hope the lateness of the hour, we said good night, will not be a problem, since you did mention you had an early flight back to Atlanta. The dinner at the top of the Marriott, the drinks and dancing to the great piano music, was a night I will remember for a very long time, with hopes of doing it again on your next trip to L.A. I remain a very special friend. Signed, Boom Boom. Of course, at the bottom of the note was the lipstick print of Boom Boom's perfect lips. I still have the note after 25 years, 26 years. My first officer did knock off the entire 30 minutes. The schedule bag had a built-in delay of, of a few minutes also. However, on Sunday, on Sundays, it worked to our advantage because of light traffic coming into Atlanta. My second officer gave me a note that came from flight operations and the chief pilot's office. It said that I was to see him first thing Monday morning to explain why the flight was late, leaving the gate by 30 minutes. It was the first trip of the month that had a schedule change of one hour, an earlier departure than the trip I had checked on my pilot bed sheet scheduled the day before. Entering the chief pilot's office and closing the door, I feared I was going to have a few expletives directed at me, and so I handed over the official report for the records with an attachment. The Boom Boom Food Tray Doily. It read, or he read, and looked at me over his reading glasses and said, Get, get the hell out of here. I didn't, but not until I retrieved my note from Boom Boom. Just a note, on the Johnny Carson TV show, Johnny had the Boom Boom girls wearing outfits much like the Hoodoo girls up here on his show from time to time. They actually earned their notoriety by playing volleyball on the Santa Monica beach near the pier. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I believe every word. <laughs> it actually happened. You still have that note. <laughs> I still have it, yeah. I'll take a yeah, picture of it, but no, I better not. I better not. Yeah. <laughs> does your wife Peggy Don, know about that? <laughs> she does Don, not. I don't, I don't think so. It, it shouldn't be a problem. to eat tonight. Yeah, even if she did hear about it uh, or read this the, the account, after all, I was, I'd tell her, after all, I was practicing my storytelling skills to compete with Hassan Calloway. And I used a lot of imagination to make it a little more interesting, like the master himself, Hassan Calloway. 
But uh, I remember, I remember well the top of the Marriott. That was a wonderful place to go on the layover. Oh yeah, there. yeah. Man, well, I you know, you, I, I used. You know, uh, it, the flight attendant I'm talking about was uh, Bill Abraham's wife. I can't think of her name now, and you know her well, uh, Jim. Yeah, Hunter, and, I can't think of either. Yeah. yeah, I can't think of her name, but uh, she she uh, put uh, put uh, put Boom Boom up to the fact that. Uh, uh, I told her about her in the cockpit, and I just kind of followed her around, and then I, I made a mistake on my bed sheet, and so she went back and uh, had uh, Case, uh, Case, her her last name was Case, C A S E, Case. I can't think of her first name now, but anyhow, she had uh, Boom Boom, or either she did it. She never did tell me. I uh, wrote that little uh, note, but uh, and then probably her lips instead of Boom Boom's lips uh, printed mm. on the bottom of that uh, doily and uh, put it mm. in an envelope, an Eastern envelope. And uh, that's what I got mm. on my tray. And I just thought it was really clever of her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy, yeah. Little things like that in, in a career. Uh, well, Neil, so there's, you know, in, in the corporate field, we used to deal in the States here, the few flights that we used to fly, they had a uh, uh, an FBO that was called uh, Flower Aviation. Yeah. And uh, they were in four or five different places. And, and they had all the girls, the, 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 all of, everybody that parked you with the lights or the wands, they were all girls, all dressed in uh, very tight stuff with very short pants and all that stuff on. Yeah. So I said, somebody, somebody must have a sheet metal business around here somewhere <laughs> that they're tied into because the guys that are they're not watching the wands, they're watching the gals. So I don't know how many wingtips they've been up when they were parking airplanes over there because the guys weren't paying attention. You know how that works. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did. I did have a business out there, and my son ran it for a while until I sold it. And um, I sold my little Ford Pinto also, Ford Pinto station wagon. And um, I had that parked at, uh, at the hotel there at the Marriott. And, and um, I really enjoyed flying out there. It was a lot of fun. Oh, well, those days are gone. Only memories. And we talk about those memories. Hey, Neil. Yes, I, I, Harry. I got a couple of questions about the about the flight bag. Yeah. Number one, what did the flight bag weigh approximately? Uh, well, uh, let's see. It uh, it was enough to probably stretch your arm maybe an inch over your career or two inches. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Harry, it's it's true that you know for for a long time, and I think you guys remember this too, uh, Jim, Mike. Uh, for the longest time, they had those little wheelies, and I, like I said, I think the flight attendant uh, came up with that idea, and mm-hmm. uh, and then and then it was around forever. I don't know whether they're still using them. I think, well, they, sure, they're using them today, and uh, but uh, the guys just didn't want to want to do that. You know, it's kind of a, a flight attendant thing instead of a pilot thing, and we continued to carry. For another couple of years, I guess at least I think I did uh, my bags. But it was uh, Larkin Roberts that I was flying with up to New York, and Larkin got tired of me trying to catch up with him, and he said, "Neil, 
He said, take your suitcase and your flight bag and swing those arms. And uh, he said, they'll step aside. Believe me, <laughs> you'll have no problem. <laughs> you remember, you know, Neil, when it comes to flight bags, uh, you know, they all have their sentimental value. But uh, I still have my dad. You know, he passed away at 59 and change, uh, just short of his retirement. And uh, his flight yeah. bag, as he left it, I have it sitting right here in my in my office. And everything is exactly the same. That he oh left from God. 1973, the mm-hmm. manuals, charts, the, yeah. those accordion fold-out things, yeah. and an old one of those old black and uh, chrome flashlights that they used to give out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, My God. Still, still still sitting there with his tags and everything on. It's got a little dust on it right now, but uh, I've I've taken wow. this stuff out and looked at it many times, but I always put it back exactly the way he left it. You must have a museum there at your house. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Uh, I usually have to, I usually have to close anybody's mouth when they walk into my place. I have to get my my hand under their chin and to close their mouth once they see all the stuff that I have laying around here. Well, there's one guy that Dorothy and I both know down in um, uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale area. What's his name, uh, Captain? Uh, I can't think of his name now, Dorothy. The one that you have Thanksgiving oh, dinner Lane. with. Ed Slane, yeah. You go into Ed Slane's house and you think that you've uh, walked into a, a, an additional annex of the Smithsonian Institute. I mean, it has I understand everything. that. I, I know yeah. Captain Slane. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and and cars. He's got I mean, a lot of models. Worth, he's yeah, got a car, several cars worth well over half a million dollars. I mean, it's amazing what that man has. Just amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful, really. Yeah. yeah. We spend, uh, well, listen. Hey, hey, Neil, do do you, any of you guys know was that flight bag designed specifically for airline crews, or did it come from another use? Somewhere I had heard or read that that was originally a salesman's uh, catalog bag. Well, you know, probably so. Uh, I would imagine, Harry. Uh, most of the Eastern guys, like myself, you know, coming from general aviation, but the military guys, of course, had their brown bags. But a lot of the guys uh, would buy their first flight bag over at the field shop where we bought our uniforms yeah. and our hats and all. Yeah. Jim, well, did you buy yours? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but uh, uh, they had several, I don't know, not several, but a few different ones, ones with hinges and some without hinges, you know, just wrap around leather. And mm-hmm. uh, I forgot who the manufacturer was. I don't recall even seeing it on the bag. But uh, from first officer, or actually, yeah, first officer to second officer to captain, that was the progression of, of my career with Eastern. Uh, my bag changed three different times when I was a newbie. Yeah. And then, when I was a flight engineer, I had to get a little bit larger one because here I was carrying tools. And uh, and then when I became a captain, I just uh, had a small bag, very small. Well, you know what he's talking about? G. Dennis Ledbetter earlier, uh, yeah. before the show. When he checked out as captain, uh, he had also uh, been promoted to uh, one-star general in the Alabama Reserves, Air Reserves. Yeah. 
And he rode my jump seat one time up to Philadelphia. He was junior to me, and he couldn't hold Atlanta, but he could hold Philadelphia when they had that little base. And he got on wearing his general's uniform, and I'm not sure why he did, but he did. And he had his flag bag, and he made sure that I saw that he has his new flag bag, and it says Captain General G. Dennis Ledbetter. Oh, my God. If you use Dennis Ledbetter, Captain General, that's what sounds like it might be a German officer or something, you know. Captain General G. Dennis Ledbetter. Middle of the first first name started with a G, I guess. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Kind of like the uh, uh, lieutenant general, you know. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, a lot of fun. We better wrap it up here. So, uh, Don, what you got? Uh, Dorothy, have you got anything for us? Uh, well, for next week. Next week we have our uh, Monday night evening show, the uh, music and history, and it's going to be during the war years. And that's going to be followed by September 14th with the Eastern Airlines Family Tree. And later on in the month, we're going to have our Hall of Fame induction of Captain John Halliburton. So we have a very good program planned, and all of the announcements will be on our website. Uh, you can check on the home page and be sure to join us each and every Monday. And, of course, we'll be back here next week with the Reaper Radio Hour. Back to you, Don. Well, I guess that's our show for this week. Uh, but we'll see you again next week, same time, when we continue through the pages of Repartee as printed in the magazine of the retired Eastern Pilots Association and other publications as well. Remember the EAL radio show this Monday evening at 7 p.m. when we talk about the war years, music and history of Eastern Airlines. And by the way, if you haven't visited our website, www.ealradioshow.com, you'll find many more great Eastern stories and memories. And it's time to say go. Excuse me. It's time to say goodbye. So on behalf of all of our hosts and our producer, Captain Neil Holland, this is Don Gagnon saying so long, Eastern family. We love you, Eastern. Love you, Eastern. Yeah, but Hello, boom, boom, wherever you are. silver wings shining in the sun. Somewhere in flight They're taking you away Leaving me lonely Silver wings Slowly fading out of sight It's
I'm wearing black They're taking you away And leaving me lonely Silver wings Slowly fading out of sight Great show, guys. Thanks so much. Yep. Thanks it's almost happy hour. <laughs> Good night, Take care, Harry. We'll see you.